right, well, good morning. Hope everybody's doing well. I want to welcome those of you who may be joining us online or maybe from one of our campuses. We are still one Seacoast family, even though we're in a bunch of different places. Tell me if you're thankful for that today. And, and one way that we make that happen is by offering you guys a chance to get connected here at Seacoast. We, we offer at least once a month, but uh, we start at the, at the beginning of every month, we start something called Next Steps which is just a place for us to get to know you a little bit, you to get to know who we are, and, and for us to figure out how we can help you do just that. Take your next step in your faith. So we invite you to join us for that next week. It'll begin. You'll get some more information on that at the end of our service today. So listen, back in April, my wife went to a concert that she said changed her life. It wasn't Maverick City. It wasn't Lauren Daigle. It wasn't even Brandon Lake. Raise your hand if you think you know who it was. It was Taylor Swift. <laughs> yeah. And it was a whole big thing. Like she said this thing was amazing. And like she was so desperate to get tickets to it. In fact, she would tell you there was a Dana before the concert and a Dana after the concert. It was that big a deal. This tour that she's on right now, it started in March of 23. It won't end until November of 24. It will probably break, it will certainly break every previous known record in the music industry for concerts. By the time it's all done, there will have been nearly 200 shows across five continents. And it will gross more than a billion dollars. She is propping up the entire U.S. economy herself. <laughs> People are losing their ever-loving minds to get tickets to this thing. Well, a few years ago, Taylor Swift had another tour, and it was a huge deal also. Wasn't as big a deal as this one, but still a very big deal. And people were nuts to get tickets to that one as well. And I may or may not have put an ad on Craigslist for VIP tickets at a ridiculous price. And I may or may not have listed Josh Walter's cell phone as the contact for that offer. And he had no idea. He just started getting blown up day and night with desperate people wanting tickets to this concert. He had no idea what they were talking about. And when they found out he didn't have tickets, they were mad, like genuinely angry with him. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. But they were so angry with him. And for years, he had no idea who had done this to him. Until a few years back, we were on a trip together, and we were at dinner one night, and I, I was sitting close enough to him and this other guy, and he, he happened to be telling this story. And I just, I guess I thought he knew. I thought he'd figured it out. But as he's telling this story, the guy's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that. He's like, yeah, it was crazy. And I said, that was definitely one of my better pranks. And Josh whipped around. He was like, what? It was you? He had no idea, and I had outed myself without even meaning to. By the way, I don't recommend doing that for this current Taylor Swift tour. I think they would declare you a terrorist and send you and your whole family to prison. Like, it would be a bad thing. But for most of the people who called him, their reaction was anger. They wanted those tickets so badly, and when they found out he didn't have them and they couldn't have them, they were mad. And it's, it, the reason that, we're, that I bring it up to you today is because it was their reaction that revealed a lot about what was going on inside of them. And for the last few weeks, we've been in a series called Reactions, where we're looking at how our actions speak louder than words, but 
our reactions speak louder than both. And I, I, whether we like it or not, sometimes we, sometimes not, we don't like it, but our reactions say the most about us. And so today I want to take a look at Elijah and what his reactions said about him. We meet Elijah as an Old Testament prophet. He was the one that God used to confront Ahab and Jezebel because of how they were leading Israel away from God through the worship of idols. And, and wanting to expose these false gods, Elijah challenged Ahab and Jezebel to a duel. He basically said, listen, you guys prepare a sacrifice, put it on the altar. I will do the same, put it on the altar. We'll both call and pray to our gods, and the God who answers by fire, he's God. Let's just settle it. And Ahab agreed. And Ahab went first. So he and his prophets prepared a bull, put it on the altar, and they began to pray. And for hours and hours they prayed, and no response. Nothing. No fire. Finally, Elijah stepped forward and said, my turn. He prepared a bull, put it on the altar, but he dumped water on it three times. And then he stepped forward and prayed this. He said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I've done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down and cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Now, what's interesting to me about this is how Elijah reacted afterwards. After Jezebel was embarrassed on the mountain that day, exposed and embarrassed, she swore that she would find and kill Elijah. And what's interesting here, for some reason, all of that courage that we saw in Elijah just melted away. It was a strange reaction for someone who had seen God's power on display. After the threat to kill Elijah, here's what the text says. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and strengthened by that food. He went 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Oreb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I know I've told you this before, but God does not ask us questions because he lacks understanding. God asks us questions because we lack understanding. And oftentimes in answering God's questions, we find the understanding that we lack. So the question, what are you doing here, Elijah? It was never meant to inform God. It was meant to inform Elijah to help him understand how he got there and where he was. 
to help him understand how his physical, emotional, and spiritual health contributed to his reactions. And that's what we're going to talk about today, how our physical health affects our reactions, how our emotional health affects our reactions, and how our spiritual health affects our reactions. Now, let's look at that first one, how our physical health affects our reactions. This would have been very true for Elijah. Remember, the text tells us that Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Be'er Shabbat in Judah, he left his servant there. Now, the distance between where he was in Jezreel to Be'er Shabbat was about 100 miles over rugged terrain. So this would have taken him several days, even if he was really moving. And so when Elijah got there, he was understandably exhausted. And how many of you would agree that when we are exhausted physically, we don't always make the best decisions. Anybody agree with that? When we're physically exhausted, it may not be the best time to make definitive judgments about ourselves or others or especially God. We can't, when, when we're physically exhausted, our minds become physically impaired. Like it's just, an, it's not a, it's not Elijah's thing. It's everybody's thing. Our minds become physically impaired and we can't follow logical reasoning. We can't focus. But when we rest, our minds reset. And we know this. Like, that's not a surprise to us. We know that our minds reset through rest. It's why John Ortberg says sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. How many of you are like, and God's, we all said amen. <laughs> You're feeling like I'm going to be very spiritual this afternoon. So Elijah arrives in Be'er Shabbat, totally spent, and the text tells us he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. And it's, it's worth noticing here just how attentive God is to Elijah. Elijah's quite vulnerable at this point, not just physically, but also emotionally and spiritually in every way. And in his kindness, God addresses every part of the man. Twice, God sent an angel to him to address his physical exhaustion. And the angel provided him with food. He gave him water to drink and bread baked over coals. The angel literally baked him a cake. And I'm going to say it before you say it, but it was angel food cake. That's just where we get it. It's a biblical thing. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. <laughs> then God sent his word to Elijah to begin ad addressing the emotional exhaustion in him. In every way, God came alongside Elijah in his discouragement, and he rebuilt the man completely. And two chapters later, we see Elijah with the courage to confront Ahab again. And now you probably know this, but I'm going to say it anyway. This story about Elijah, it's not just about Elijah. It's about you and me too. In this story, God is demonstrating his desire to come alongside us in our pain. That is universally true because it's true about God. But this isn't the first time that we see somebody in the headspace of being so discouraged that they're ready to give up. We also see Moses ask God to take his life after the Israelites continued to complain about their journey through the desert. They were frustrated with God that he had led them into the desert and given them only manna to eat. Never mind that God had led them out of Egypt where they were slaves. 
they were frustrated and they relentlessly complained to Moses and Moses was over it. And he prayed to God saying, God, I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. And Job felt the same way after losing his children, his businesses and his health. In fact, there's a whole chapter where all Job does is ask that God would take his life. He said, why did I not perish at birth? For now I would be lying down in peace. Incidentally, Moses said this on the back end of trekking through the desert for several years. And Job said this on the back end of tremendous grief and loss. Both of them had to be physically exhausted, just like Elijah. But the other common thread that's running through this is how each of them was more focused on their circumstances than they were the God who was working through their circumstances. All they could see were the challenges. All they could see were the difficult things, and they had lost sight of how God was at work in those challenges. And the same is true for you and me. You know, if all you can see is the thing you want, you will struggle to embrace all that God has already given you. If all you can see is the job you've lost, you will struggle to find the new assignment God has for you. If all you see is the breakup, then you will struggle to find the breakthrough God has for you. And if all you can see is the wayward child, then then you'll struggle to live in the hope that just as God is not finished with them, he is not, not finished with you. He's not finished with them either. At the end of the day, Moses was delivered. Job was restored and Elijah was glorified. And at the end of the day, God is working through our circumstances too. But when we're physically exhausted, we may have trouble seeing it. So here's my question for you. Do you have a rhythm of rest in your life? Do you have a rhythm of rest? This is exactly why God gave us the Sabbath. He built the entire world in six days, and on the seventh, he rested. And we have to keep in mind that God did not rest because he was tired. He did not rest because he needed it. We've got to remember that he's God, and his strength is infinite, and it's irreducible. He rested because he wanted to show us something. He rested to establish a routine for you and me. When God rested, he did it to show us how we were designed to thrive. We need rest. And when we, and we need it regularly enough that our bodies and minds can reset. So my question is, do you rest well? Do you protect the Sabbath day in your life where God can remind you of the blessings and the promises that he has made to you? A day where you can take a break from all the demands in your life. Without it, you may find that you're not resting in the way that you you're not reacting in the way that you want to, because our physical health affects our reactions. So we know that much is true. Our physical health affects our reactions, but our emotional health also affects our reactions. This was not a surprise to us either, but there are a number of things that affect our emotional health, things like family history. Childhood experiences, trauma, loss, physiological things like brain chemistry, all of them have an impact on our emotional health. But you know what the single greatest contributor to our emotional health is? 
It's our relationships. Our relationships. Pick up any accredited journal of medicine or psychology, and they will drive you towards the same conclusion. Close friendships are associated with greater happiness, lower depression, increased self-worth and purpose. They even have a physiological impact on us by lowering our blood pressure and lengthening our lifespan. Without question, relationships are the single greatest contributor to our emotional health. And this may have been Elijah's biggest mistake. If you remember, we read early in chapter 19, it says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. Now, you need to know this was not Elijah's slave. That's not what this is. I know that when we hear the word servant, that's where our Western minds may go. But that's not how this word translates in Hebrew. In context, this word means young man or apprentice. This was a young man who was learning from Elijah because he wanted to become like Elijah. An easier way for us to think about this might be to think of the karate kid. Anybody remember that? For those of you Gen Zers out there, this is what we had before we had Cobra Kai. Remember Daniel's son and Mr. Miyagi, right? Daniel's son was learning karate as he was Mr. Miyagi's servant. He was waxing on and waxing off. He was sanding floor and painting fence. And somehow all of that turned into this. And suddenly he was a ninja. You saw the movie, you know. So in this text, this was Elijah's apprentice. But on this journey, when he was running from Ahab, he was far more than that. He was Elijah's companion. And for some reason, Elijah decided to leave him behind and isolate himself in the wilderness. And that's where his mind really began to unravel. Because not long after that, Elijah prayed that he might die. It was in the absence of relationships that Elijah began to come apart emotionally. And his reaction was to give up. If you wonder... Why we always ask you guys and encourage you guys to get into small groups. This is it. This is the reason. Because we thrive in community and we deteriorate quickly in isolation. It's in community that we learn more about who we are and who God is. C.S. Lewis says it this way. The only way to know God intimately is to know others who know him intimately. The more of God's people you are involved with, the more of God you will see. As we live alongside each other through the good and the bad, there are things that we learn about God that we wouldn't otherwise know. Things about his faithfulness and his goodness, his ability to redeem everything, because we not only see him at work in our lives, but we see him at work in everybody around us. So we need to know that isolation actually diminishes our experience of God. Well, let's be real for a minute here, like just real talk. Some of us choose to isolate it because we are convinced that is where we are most safe. And sadly, there are reasons for that. We may not like being alone, but we think to ourselves, at least no one can hurt me. Jackie Hill Perry says it like this. Everybody 
ain't loved everybody well. We've all experienced and doled out our share of pain in this life, and it stays with us for much longer than we want it to, which makes us go about life guarding ourselves from further pain. And I, I wonder if way beneath our doubt, way at the bottom of it, that God isn't safe either. That he is just like the father that left us, the mother who forgot to nurture us, the friend who didn't listen to us, and the people in positions of power who abused us. So when God reveals himself as our heavenly father, our faithful friend, and our Lord, we don't relinquish control of our lives because we mistakenly project on God the nature of those who have hurt us. We make the mistake of seeing heaven through the lens of earth. What she's describing here are those moments when we allow our hurt to harden us. In both subtle and obvious ways, we teach ourselves to guard, to self-protect, to withdraw. In our lives, we become runners using independence and isolation as a coping strategy. Sometimes we isolate because we're ashamed or we're depressed. Sometimes we just isolate because we're afraid and we remember how we've been hurt. But we need to know that regardless of why we do it, the reaction to isolate will always hurt us. Because if we live in isolation, we have only our own thoughts and feelings to listen to. And I need to remind you, those can be wildly misleading at times. It's exactly what happened to Elijah. Remember, the text tells us he came to a broom bush. He sat down under it and he prayed that he might die. Now, a broom bush in Israel was also called a juniper tree. And the juniper tree is a very selfish tree. It secretes a toxin in the soil around it so that nothing else can grow and it won't have to compete for water. And the berries of this particular tree are poisonous to humans. So here's Elijah wanting to take refuge from his pain, but doing it in a way that will actually hurt him. To me, it's an interesting parallel of how isolation affects us. People don't isolate with the intention of hurting themselves. Nobody thinks I'm going to hurt myself and sit here all alone. No one thinks that in our emotional distress. We think isolation will make us feel better. We think at least nobody will know, or at least I won't be a burden, or at least nobody will hurt me. But whether we isolate because of shame or fear or anything else, the result is the same. Isolation hurts us. Just like the broom bush slowly poisons everything around it. Isolation slowly poisons us by narrowing the focus on ourselves. And that has a way of significantly impacting our reactions. So our physical health affects our reactions. Our emotional health affects our reactions. And finally, our spiritual health affects our reactions. And by spiritual health, I mean what we're able to see and discern in the world around us. Because on the one hand, I want you to hear this. On the one hand, there's what happens to us. But on the other hand, there's what we tell ourselves about what happens to us. What happens to us can be very difficult. But what we tell ourselves about what happens to us can be paralyzing. Whether we know it or not, this has played out in all of our lives. We have allowed ourselves or others or our circumstances to tell us things about ourselves or about God that just aren't true. 
They have led us to poor conclusions about who we are and who God is. We see this in the 12 disciples when Jesus calmed the storm. Luke tells us that one day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. So they got in the boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, master, master, we're going to drown. He got up, rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where's your faith? He asked the disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. Now, I don't know if it was because Luke was a doctor, but he wrote his gospel with very little emotion. It was a, a very matter of fact account of Jesus's life, death and resurrection. On the other hand, Mark wrote his gospel very differently. He tried to capture the emotional weight of what was happening. And so where you have the disciples in Luke saying, master, master, we're going to drown. You have the disciples in Mark saying, teacher, don't you care if we drown? And between the two of them, we get a very complete picture. You see, the disciples were afraid they were going to drown. That's what was happening to them. But they were even more afraid that Jesus didn't care they were going to drown. That's what they were telling themselves about what was happening to them. And we've got to be very careful about this in our lives because sometimes we assign motives to God based on how we interpret our circumstances. And those are the moments when we can allow our spiritual health or our spiritual unhealth to define who God is. And we don't get to define who God is. If we do, he's no longer God. We are. And this is very common in today's culture. We have empowered our feelings to define who we are, who others are, and even who God is. And we've got to remember, as C.S. Lewis says, feelings can be great liars. So we must be careful that we do not feel our way into our beliefs, but rather we believe our way into our feelings. Martin Luther used to call this drowning out the voices of despair with the louder voice of the gospel. A good picture of this is that moment when a baby gets a shot from a doctor. I remember when Dana and I would take Matthew or Emma to the, to the pediatrician and they're just this little, little baby, whether they were sick or it was a well visit and you know, we'd hand them to the pediatrician and they were quite content and happy until he grabbed their chunky little leg and stuck them with a needle. And then they would jump and they would start screaming until they were breathless. And we would hold them and try to comfort them while they looked back at us like, how could you? I thought you loved me. How could you let this happen to me? We're thinking we allowed this pain to come because we love you. And we know that there's a vast gap between the understanding of the baby in that moment and the understanding of the parent in that moment. The baby is thinking this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. My parents must not love me anymore. The parents are thinking this is important and it will protect the child that I love. Now, if the gap between the understanding of the baby and the parent is that significant, then how great is the gap between our understanding and that of the almighty, all-knowing God who loves us? 
But another thing we need to notice here is Jesus's response. When the disciples cry out, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Luke tells us that Jesus got up. He rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked the disciples. The first thing Jesus did here was to address their faith, and he did it with a question. Where's your faith? And it's important because we have to answer the same question. Whether we like it or not, we will all put our faith in something. It may be God. It may be something else. But make no mistake, you've put your faith in something. And the something you put your faith in will always affect your reactions. For the disciples, their faith was in their ability to navigate the storm. And they realized it was too much for them. And I probably don't need to say this, but I'm going to. Sometimes the storms are too much for you. We don't like to admit it, but they just are. But the storms are never too much for God. So where's our faith? Now, the second thing Jesus did here was to address their fear. And when he did, he made a loud statement once and for all that our fear matters to God. Now, this incidentally became clear to me many years ago when my mother went in for a a routine back surgery. But during this time in her life, her back was not the only source of pain in her life. And, And to cope with that pain, my mother had become addicted to alcohol. It was a daily thing for her, and and she was highly functioning, most times hit it very well, but she was most definitely using alcohol to cope with the pain in her life, and it owned her for a long season. And I was pretty sure, because I had seen this for so long, I had began to accept that it, it would never change. I was pretty sure that when I stood at my mother's, when I stood at my mother's funeral, This would be the thing that took her from me. But she went into the hospital for a routine back surgery. It was supposed to be in one day, out the next, but things didn't go as planned, and she ended up staying another night, and then another night, and then another night. And a whole week went by, and without meaning to, she ended up detoxing in the hospital right in front of her doctors, who were able to show her how this addiction was killing her. A week later, she was a week later, she was released from the hospital. And from the moment she was released, she's never had another drink. so proud of my mom and grateful to God that he rewrote her story in that way. My mistake was in accepting that this addiction was bigger than the God who cared about my fears. And my encouragement to you is don't be like me. Don't accept that God isn't bigger than your greatest fear. Don't accept that God can't do what you think is impossible. Don't accept that God can't restore your marriage. Don't accept that God can't help you break free from that addiction. Don't accept that you will never have the abundant life God promises because he who promised it is faithful. (laughs) 
So you can tell me that God doesn't care about our greatest fears, but I won't believe you because I've seen too much. And I've seen it in the lives of the people who are closest to me. There is what happens to us and there is what we tell ourselves about what happens to us. And that can shape our spiritual health, our spiritual perspective about who God is. And that will always have a significant impact on our reactions. So what do we do? What can we do? Well, I think we do what the disciples did. We run to Jesus with a sense of urgency. Remember Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell us that the disciples woke Jesus. They didn't wait for him to wake up. They ran to him and they woke him up. It clearly conveys a sense of urgency and desperation. Their reaction was to run to Jesus, and it made all the difference. So what about us? What do our reactions say about us? What's going on in us spiritually? Many of you know that one of our staff members, Lori Fitzgerald, knew this was going to be rough. passed away suddenly a couple weeks ago. Lori and I had uh, worked very closely together for the last 11 years. She supported me in every role I've had here. And behind all the sass and sarcasm, she was far more than a co-worker. She was a good friend. She served as the office manager for the counseling center most recently, and she was very instrumental in helping us get that thing to a launch. But like most of us, Lori didn't always have the easiest life. And in fact, a lot of times it was very difficult. But she would buoy herself with this phrase, God's got this. It was her way of recentering her focus on God rather than her circumstances. That was how she would react to challenging situations. And her reaction revealed a lot about her. That while she wouldn't have chosen the situation she was in, she believed God was using it. Whether she liked it or not, God was still working in her. So what about us? What do our reactions reveal about what's going on in us spiritually? Do they convey a sense of urgency to run to Jesus knowing that he's our hope? Do they demonstrate a willingness to trust him in circumstances that we wouldn't choose, but we're confident he's using? Or do they simply say, God's got this? Our reactions will always reveal what is going on inside of us. And if we can learn to pay attention to them, then we will uncover some opportunities to grow physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that as you were with Elijah and as you were with the disciples, you are persistently present with us. And I pray, God, that our perspective would be built on what you have said about yourself, not on our feelings, not on anyone else's, but what you have revealed about who you are. Anything, Father, that leads us to a conclusion that is different from that, we ask that you tear it down. 
And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.